And now I'm going to speak on my continuing series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, and how ironic that on Mother's Day I'm going to wind up speaking on, about Jesus speaking about adultery. Uh, I, didn't plan, I didn't plan it that way, but that's exactly what happened. And so I want to talk to you about uh, this sermon as I prepared this sermon and wrote this sermon. I had a hard time. Uh, you know, I always spend probably 15 to 20 hours a week writing the sermons and praying over them and making sure that, that it's done the way God would want it done. And after about eight hours of writing, I had a block. I had a block. I found it difficult. Uh, the words weren't coming out. Uh, and I prayed about it because I said to myself, John, maybe this isn't a message for our church. You know, our church are older people. They're, they're in their 70s and 80s and 90s. Half of them have been locked down in their house uh, for the past year. Uh, is this really a sermon that this church needs to hear? Uh, and as I prayed about it, honestly, God just touched my heart, and I reflected, and, he, and, and really the, the words that came to me were, yes, yes, because it's not just the people in the, in the seats that need to hear it. Their children need it. Their grandchildren need it. The world needs it. And so much of what we do here is about preparing you to go out and speak to others. And so that's why this message resonates and how I hope it touches your heart. And after all, if Jesus said it, then it's worth studying. So Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can follow with me. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Wow, Jesus never minces words, does he? Uh, pretty severe prescription here about sin. But the point of this is that Jesus is emphasizing the pervasive metastatic effect of sin. Uh, and so this is another example, another example where the Pharisees had it wrong. They had it wrong. They were misinterpreting the law of God, and that's why Jesus said, you have heard it said, meaning I know the Pharisees have told you this, but what they have told you is not right. And so once more, they took the particular letter of the law uh, and reduced it to one particular issue, the physical act of adultery, when God meant far more than that. God meant what was in the heart, what was in the mind, all the issues of lust, because he covered that with the Ten command, the, the tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. Well, obviously, coveting your neighbor's wife is a sin, and it's a mental sin, and it had broken the law of God. But they didn't get it. They never understood it. So if they had studied the law, truly studied it, they would have gotten it. Uh, and so this mental sin now is what Jesus focuses on. And I would say really that for a church like ours, this really is probably the most applicable sin the, the sin of the mind, the sin of the heart, uh, and, and the, the fact of lust. Uh, and as it relates here, Jesus is speaking about the, the lust uh, of, of flesh, really, of someone else. 
and so clearly no one ever kept the law. No one kept the law. And so Jesus is focusing on the need of, of addressing sin. That's what this is all about, the pervasive metastatic effect of sin. What happens when sin infects itself in your life? Can you just merely dismiss it? Can you call it, and I've heard this, a peccadillo? Well, you know, I have warts. Uh, I have some weaknesses. No, no, you have sin in your life. It's not a peccadillo. It's sin in your life. And unless you understand the New Testament doctrine of sin and salvation, you can't really understand salvation because the only way you get to salvation is to ask God to wash away your sins, to forgive you, to let a Savior come in and take over your life. They are inextricably linked together. That's why we study sin, so that you understand what the problem with humanity is. And so there is really no true evangelism without the doctrine of sin and without understanding what sin is. And Jesus understood that. And that's why he's making it a point of underscoring this. You see, holiness, true holiness, is a matter of the heart. It's not just the outward manifestation because, gee, the Pharisees were experts at that. It's not how I outwardly manifest myself to the world. It's what's in my heart. What's in my mind? What am I reflecting on? And Paul spoke about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul said, watch, watch, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Prove your own selves. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're working to be saved. You're saved by the grace of God, but it means that you are in active, ongoing partnership with God. God has given you the Holy Spirit, and now he expects you every day to look at yourself, examine yourself, watch yourself. Where are you going? What are you doing? Uh, and so Jesus is teaching us that this is the critical issue of salvation. What is in your heart? And you see, the Pharisees never got that. They lived by the letter of the law. Meanwhile, there's a sepulcher in their hearts. Uh, and full, full of deceit, full of sin. Uh, and so we can never be right with God unless we address that issue. And so sin twists everything and perverts everything and leads man to his ultimate downfall. Paul, the great apostle, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, probably spoke out on this issue better than anyone else. Uh, and, and he did it in Romans 7, verses 21 to 25, where he focused on the need to address sin in your life. And there he said, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Can you imagine the man who would be the greatest uh, 
apostle, the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist, who would write two-thirds of the New Testament, who will ultimately give his life for the gospel of Christ, telling you these words, that in his life, and by the way, he's saved. He's saved. He's already writing the Bible, writing the New Testament, but he's telling you here about the, the law that's going on, the warfare that's going on in his mind. He understands the commandments. He knows what they are. He intends to do it, but Satan causes himself to have thoughts that are against the law of God. And this is how we all are. Don't be ashamed that these thoughts come into your mind. That's exactly what's happened. While we walk around in this body, this is what we're going to be subject to. These kinds of the vicissitudes of life, the changing nature of life, and how these various things will come into your mind and into your thought. And here he is wrestling with it, wrestling with it. I'm a slave I'm a slave to this. I know what the law is, and yet I find myself not doing what I should do, but doing what is wrong. And only through the grace of the Holy Spirit does God equip you to be able to fight these battles. Look, friends, don't think that you are immune, okay? Don't think that you're immune. Don't think, well, John, come on. My mother and father were Christians. I was born in the church. I've been in the church my whole life. I've been saved my whole life. Uh, I've devoted myself to God. This could never happen to me. This could never happen to me. Well, let me ask you something. Do you think David said that? you think that's what David said, the king of Israel? Turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. One of the more sad, poignant stories in Scripture that relates to the pervasive nature of sin. Here is David, anointed by God to be king of Israel from the time he was 16 years old, who would come on to be the greatest king of Israel, who would be in the very lineage of Jesus Christ, who would write most of the Psalms, who was a great prophet, who had a great vision of the coming of Jesus Christ, even to the extent of the crucifixion in vivid detail in Psalm 22. Here is this great man. And now I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and follow along with me, beginning with verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And there, my friends, is the first step towards sin. Because David sent the army out, and he didn't go with the army. He stayed back at the palace. He didn't align himself with people who would have lifted him up with prayer, who would have supported him, who would have been accountable with him. But instead, he sent them out to fight the battle of, of the Lord's enemies, and he remained home alone. And that's the first message. Don't stay alone. God doesn't intend for you to be a lone ranger. You need to be part of a church. You need to be part of a community that will pray for you and support you in every way. Well, he made that mistake. Uh, and continuing on, it says that they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. And the Bible emphasizes that. He's, he's, it's emphasizing that he's staying by himself. And I would say this, that there's no good in the kingdom of God when you remain alone. God has not intending us to be alone. God wants to, us to be a part of a congregation, a part of a community of believers, of people that can 
can help us to be accountable to God. Continuing on. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now, this would be akin to you turning on your computer at 1 o'clock in the morning. Okay? Let me say right up front, there's no good in you going and turning on your computer at 1 o'clock in the morning and telling your wife you have to do some important research. All right? Let's understand something. This is an issue. And so David now is walking up on the roof of the house because he likes what he sees. And he just doesn't go one time. I am convinced that he has gone up there multiple times because he likes the view. And look at the view, continuing on. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Now, do you see the insidious, pervasive nature of sin? It's not like you start off and say, give me that gun, I'm going to shoot this person. No, it's not. It's innocent in the way it works. And, and, and God is showing you this. First, you stay alone. You send the armies out. Then you're by yourself. Then you walk up on the roof. Come on, John. What harm can there be in walking around on the roof of the palace? After all, I'm the king, and I like the view. And so I probably go up night after night. And then, ooh, I see that beautiful woman taking a bath. All right? Well, at that point, he could have closed it down. At that point, he said, God, give me strength. Purge this from my mind, Lord. Help me. Help me to, to prevail against this weakness, Jesus. Help me, Lord, and go downstairs and stay off the roof. But what does he do? No, no, no. Now, he sends a guy over to find out about her, right? The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Notice this. Not only was she a beautiful woman, she was already married. Married to a great soldier, Uriah the Hittite, who winds up being one of the great martyrs in Scripture. Uriah the Hittite. Did that stop him? No, because you see the pervasive metastatic effect of sin. That's what this message is about. That's what Jesus is talking to us about here. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, it gets worse. This is one of the most uh, dark stories that you'll fight in the Scripture, to think that a man as great as David could stoop to the level of the sins that he will commit. Because not only does he sleep with her, but he impregnates her, and now he's got to concoct an excuse for how she got pregnant, although her husband is fighting on the front lines with the army against God's enemies. So he brings Uriah home, and he tells Uriah, look, I want you to go into your house and sleep with your wife. And this dedicated man refuses. He refuses. He says, no, I cannot go and sleep with my wife, not while the people of God, the soldiers are fighting. I cannot do it. So he refuses to do what David wanted him to do. And so David goes even further. He gives a, a note to the generals of the army and sends Uriah back when he can't compose him and compel him to do it. He says, put this man in the very front line and then when the battle is at its hottest, withdraw the other soldiers. Withdraw the other soldiers and leave him there to be killed. Well, guess what? 
he is killed. He dies. And so the blood of Uriah the Hittite is on David's hand. All right? And it gets worse because the child of that union dies right after it was born. It dies. Uh, and David will go through great, great tragedy in his life uh, as a result of this. In fact, for 18 months, David didn't write a single psalm. He was cut off in his communication with God. You see, that's what sin does. Don't think you can do these kind of things, can have this evil in your life, and yet you're still going to be able to pray, and God will answer those prayers. That's a false. That's a false notion. That's not the way it works. God wants you to be holy and righteous, and if there's sin in your life, he wants you to beg for forgiveness, and he'll do that. Uh, and so you see this. You see the repercussions of sin. Now, David would go on. God would deliver David. God would forgive David. David would continue to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ uh, and would be uh, one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, the greatest, really. Uh, but you see the metastatic effect of sin. That's why Jesus is emphasizing the nature of sin, the nature of the fact that there's a mental component of it, and it's so pervasive that Jesus tells you to pluck out your eye. Or cut off your hand. Why? Because the very things, the very great things that God has given you, an eye or a hand, when, when it can be used for the nature of sin, ought to be removed, ought to be cut off. Now, Jesus isn't telling you to, to literally lop off your hand or literally poke out your eye, but he's telling you effectively, figuratively, metaphorically to do it, to be careful, to watch where you go. Don't walk up on the roof. Don't get up at 1 o'clock in the morning and turn on uh, a computer. Don't go to places where you know you're going to be sucked in because you have some weakness. It's as if you're an alcoholic. Why would you walk into a bar? Why would you do that? Why would you compel yourself to be tempted when you know that God doesn't want you to do this? Uh, and so Jesus is teaching us about the importance of this issue and teaching us about how to handle it. Cut off your right hand. Pluck out your eye. That's how serious this issue is. Why would you go touch a fire if you knew the fire was raging, why would you do that? And yet you see so much, that's exactly what humanity does. Uh, and so the practical aspects of this message are just as important as the spiritual aspects of it, meaning God wants you to be in partnership with him and wants you to be wary of where your weaknesses are. Uh, and I can tell you that I lived with this with my father, and my sister will confirm this, and that is, I watched television with my father as a kid. And you know I would be 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And you know the kind of man my father was, a devout, holy, righteous man, a minister his whole life. He loved to watch westerns. Oh, he loved westerns. So he loved to watch Gunsmoke and have gun with travel and Bonanza. And he would watch it, and I would sit there watching it with him as a young boy. And everything would be good, but all of a sudden... All of a sudden, typically in these shows, you know, a man and a woman would suddenly get together, and all of a sudden there would be this long, prolonged, romantic kiss. And my father would react like this. Oh, the clincher. Jump up and turn off the TV. The clincher. Turn off the TV. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, my God, what kind of a house did you grow up in? 
But I understood, I understood what he was trying to do. I understood that he was concerned about what would come into that house, all right? Even as it appeared to be innocent, he was concerned about it, certainly for himself, but also for me. And you know what? Sometimes even nice things have to be dealt with and sacrificed. How many of us turn the TV off when we see the garbage that comes out? A kiss? Are you kidding me, John? A kiss? I mean, the things that come on today on television will curl your hair. And yet so many of us sit there like mummies and watch it and let it come in and permeate to us. Uh, and, and of course, we talked about already things about the computer. Really, many of you ought to turn the computer off, honestly. Turn the computer off. Why? Because you are destroying your own righteousness and you are ruining your relationship with your wife and your children. And by the way, according to recent statistics, it's not just men that have these issues. It's women as well. I'm going to give you some statistics here, which you're going to find hard to believe. But in preparation for this message, I studied it. This comes from a 2020, last year, Barma Group study that revealed that the initial exposure to pornography begins in childhood. Begins in childhood and progresses. So I ask you, if it begins in childhood and you're a parent or a grandparent, what are you doing? Are you asleep at the switch? It has to begin in the house. Somebody has to watch what's being watched, what they're doing, what's on the computer. If it begins in childhood. And then here's, here's another astonishing fact. Over 40 million Americans regularly visit pornography sites. Regularly. The annual revenue of the pornography industry is greater than the combined revenues of the three big television networks. ABC, CBS, and NBC. Is that astonishing? That's the amount of money that's going through the porn industry. And 47%, almost 50% of American families reported as a problem in their home. Half of the families in America indicate that this is a problem in their home. It increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. Imagine that. The marital infidelity rate in the United States is increased by 300% as a direct result uh, of watching pornography. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornography websites. 56% of the divorces that are going on report one person in the marriage had an obsessive interest with pornography. Does that surprise you? That all of a sudden, the woman that you're married to maybe isn't as quite as interesting or attractive as she was when you married her because you've now poisoned your mind, because you've allowed filth to come into your mind and your heart uh, and effectively ruined your own righteousness and your own holiness and now effectively dragged your wife through the mud. And this is this last statistic is the one that really sobered me, uh, and that is 68% of church going men, 
50% of church-going men have a problem with this, and 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. 50% of pastors in America view pornography on a regular basis. I'm going to say it right now because you may be thinking it. No, not your pastor. No. And I stand before the throne of God. No. But, but this is a problem. It's infected the homes. It's infecting churches. Why do you think Jesus spoke about it? Do you just think he was throwing something off the top of his head? This is why he said, cut off your hand, poke out your wife, because he understood the pervasive metastatic effect of this issue, how critical it was. We cannot allow this disease to continue. Church, we have to stop it. I am preaching this message so that you spread it to your children. I'm preaching it so you spread it to your grandchildren. You have to be out there. You have to be aware. Don't ignore it. Don't put it under a pillow. Stand up and be aware of it because this is a critical issue affecting the family and the church throughout America. And so here's the issue. This is what it's about. We must deliberately restrain our flesh with every suggestion of evil deliberately. That's what God wants. He expects you to be in active, ongoing partnership with him. With Him, He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Now he expects you to use the power of the Holy Spirit to pray and restrain and not go places where you go. Once we realize, frankly, the price that had to be paid by Christ to deliver us from sin, he came to this world uh, in order to deliver us from sin and went on the cross in order that we could be delivered from sin. And what now? Even though we're saved, we can recklessly walk through life as if that price had not been paid? Oh, God, have mercy on us as a people. Have mercy on us as a church. Uh, And so we come to recognize the absolute need of the Holy Spirit in this issue. You need to take steps to restrain ourselves and to restrain this evil. You have to recognize that what leads you to sin Where do you go that you find yourself weak? Where do you go that the temptation begins? And you have to ask the Holy Spirit to empower you not to go, not to go up on the roof, not to go and turn the computer on at 1 o'clock in the morning, not to sit there and watch programming that's not good for you or is ultimately uh, negative in terms of your family, to stand up and turn it off. Ask God to help you, to give you strength to do this. Because here it is on Mother's Day and we elevate mothers, but honestly, you can't elevate any of the women in your life if this is what's going on in your life. This is such a a pervasive thing. And, And here's the thing, Scripture tells us, tells us that through the Holy Spirit, we have the, we have the power to, quote, mortify. That's the word, mortify the deeds of the body. And so what does that mean? It means if you have accepted Christ, God has plugged you in to the Holy Spirit, and it is that very Holy Spirit which compels you and allows you to take these issues in your life and mortify them, effectively deaden them, to take them out, to plug them out so that they cannot affect you negatively. And I want you to understand this act of sanctification. You know, we talk about sanctification in the church. Well, this is the process of sanctification. Don't just sit there and think, oh, I'm just going to sit here like I'm getting a suntan, and I'll get sanctified. You know, it's not like that. It's God has given you the authority to be in partnership with him 
through the Holy Spirit. Mortify your body. Watch where you're going. Watch what you're looking at. Be alert. Uh, And all of this is part of the process of salvation. If you have your scripture, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, and this is Paul now speaking to Christians, all right? He's speaking to people who are saved. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. He didn't mean work to be saved. You couldn't do that. Only the grace of God would allow you to be saved. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God has given you the power to work it out. He has given you the power to recognize what's good and what's evil. He's given you the Holy Spirit. You don't sit there as a silent partner, but you actively pray. You actively restrain yourself. You get up and you turn things off that you shouldn't watch. You don't go places where you know you shouldn't go. Uh, and, And it continues there as he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's how it is. Fear and trembling, meaning I respect you, God. I love you, God. I wouldn't do this to you, Father. I wouldn't cause the Holy Spirit to be grieved with my conduct. I recognize that when I sin like this, I'm not just sinning against my wife. I'm not just sinning against my family, but I'm sinning against you. I'm sinning against you, Father. That's why he said, work it out with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's the nature of being created. That's why he called us in salvation, to elevate the kingdom of God, to advance the kingdom of God. What kind of person are you going to be advancing the kingdom of God if you are sold out to this evil state? How can you advance the kingdom of God and let people see who you are and the effect of being a Christian if you're filled with this disease? You cannot. And so you have to be mindful of it. It's not just your wife. It's not just your family. It's God himself that you're sinning against. And so we have to be in a state of submission and trembling and awe and respect, understanding really the true nature of sin and the awful grip that it has on man. That's what this is about. Jesus is speaking to you about the awful grip of sin awful, how it takes hold of us and ruins us. And here's the thing. God wants you to be poor in spirit. Let's go back to the basics. Be poor in spirit, mourning your spiritual condition, uh, constantly asking God uh, to fill us and refill us with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Because all of these things will allow us to restrain ourselves, will allow us to pluck out our eye if it's necessary, or cut off our hand uh, metaphorically, uh, because this is what God wants from us. He will be with you every day that you walk in this world. He will never abandon you. All you have to say is, Lord, I am weak. Lord, I need help. Lord, I mourn my spiritual condition, and he's there for you. He'll be there for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be on your knees. Go before the throne of God and ask for help, and he will help. 
He will help. And continue to be part of a congregation where people can lift you up and be, hold you to accountability. Uh, because the, if you continue to do this, as you walk with him, God will strengthen you. He'll lift you up. He'll affirm you. And one day you will see him face to face. You will be with him face to face, and he will say to you, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we want. That's what this is all about. And so I hope this message touches your heart. It's not an easy message to preach. Uh, it's not an easy message to hear. But it's an important message, not just for you, but for your kids and for your grandchildren. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for, for these words. Lord, I thank you for your instruction. I thank you for what Christ has written for us and given to us as a roadmap. Lord, I ask you to continue to imbue us with the Holy Spirit. Strengthen us in every way, Lord, so that when we are tempted, when we seem about to fall, that through the Holy Spirit we'll be, st we'll be strengthened and affirmed. And walk away, Father, the way we should walk away as we see the cross in every aspect of our life. Be with our people. Strengthen them in every way. Protect them in every way as we put all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.